I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. We're going to get to the title situation, square situation in a second here. But just to start off with some other madness, which also doesn't make any sense, is you know Google has come out because Apple's put into effect more privacy standards to prevent you know egregious tracking um, outside of apps right so google and facebook have historically been able to track what you do and other companies track what you do when you're not even using those apps that's how you know when you're just talking about something and then you see an ad for it in google or facebook um they're listening to you they're tracking you when you leave the app everything and everywhere you go uh, on the internet irrespective of whether or not you're actually doing it in one of their products. So Apple said, hey, we're clamping down on this. And then Google said, oh, oh, okay, uh, great. Yeah, no, we are going to, uh, we're going to police ourselves because as, as Engadget says, Google is policing itself on privacy because it knows it has to. Who believes that Google is really going to police itself? What this article goes on to tell you is that Google is going to shut down third-party cookies. Despite that, yesterday's news that Google will not build identifiers to track individuals across the internet came as a surprise. The company also affirmed that it won't use any new identifiers made by third parties. Hmm. So if, if Google's whole business is selling ads and, and the way they sell more ads is by having more detailed information on what you do on the internet so they can serve you what? Better ads and then they can make more money. Um, how, you know, just how could this, any of this make any sense? Well, the answer is Google has figured out how to track you using alternative means. So they're not hurting their business just because Apple's changing iOS and preventing this tracking doesn't mean that Google said, whoa, we have to wholesale change our whole business model. We're going to hurt our ability to operate in our cash cow monopoly that is search and our advertising duopoly with Facebook. Nope, that's not what they're doing. This is really just a PR stunt. And uh, Ben Thompson does a pretty good job of explaining what Google is doing to basically uh, get around this. So here, if you can see here, Paul Graham's reaction, what this news tells me is that Google has found a way to target ads just as effectively without using the data that they're saying they're going to stop using. Ben's response is, you would be right. And so basically, if, if it doesn't make sense, you're right. It doesn't make sense. Google's not actually uh, getting out of the tracking business. They've just figured out a way to do this and have been working on it for a long time. They've just figured out a way to do this um, in a different way with different technologies and different data because Google has over 50% of the digital advertising market. Um, so they're just pinpointing this on kind of technologies and data protection rights that have been in the news for years. Google's moved past that effectively. Um, there's no really material change to Google. I think it's just more of a PR stunt um, and, and to try and make themselves look good. It doesn't make sense, and, and there's a reason, because Google's not actually changing at all. Um, another deal that doesn't make sense is uh, square, square buying title. Can't even keep a straight face talking about this. Just announced, Square buys majority of title, adds Jay-Z to its board, and bid to shake up 
the artist economy. When you look at the numbers, the deal's worth $300 million. They're valuing title no more than $600 million. I don't think we know the exact valuation, but they have a majority stake. The other artists that were also shareholders in title also get to effectively roll their equity. So they're still on the cap table. This is a, you know, let's call it a sub $600 million business that is now competing against Spotify. Spotify is a $53 billion business. I wouldn't be concerned. Their stock's down. I wouldn't be concerned by, by this news one iota uh, if I'm Spotify. You got a $600 million business against a $53 billion business. Oh, and I forgot, there is actually one other player in the music streaming business, small company, you may not have heard of it, called Apple. It's, it's not even a platform business. Um, Spotify, we've talked about, not a platform business. Tidal, definitely not a platform business. You know, the, the music rights, the music licensing industry is basically controlled by the four giant, you know, publishing houses. And then they've actually aggregated all their supply uh, through the RIAA, like the Recording Industry Something Association. And, and that organization basically negotiates licensing deals with Spotify and others on behalf of just about the entire music industry. So you can imagine the pricing power and the leverage that, you know, the RIAA and then the, the, the different recording, you know, uh, uh, publishing houses have because they basically just all joined together into one uh, negotiating house. For that reason, the supply is not fragmented um, in the music industry. That's why we've seen Spotify making huge investments with podcasting, because that is wildly fragmented. There's a myriad of creators, much of them independent. And so, you know, Spotify, we've really liked this approach for them to go after podcasting because it has legitimate platform dynamics where traditional music does not, right? Much more of a linear digital business, which means that for title to come from way far behind and try to catch up here, it just doesn't make any sense. Maybe the board justified this because if you look at the money that Square made on their caviar investment, they bought caviar for 100 million bucks, they sold them to DoorDash for 400 million bucks, $300 million. Maybe Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter and Square, maybe he was like, yeah, just take the $300 million that we got from selling caviar and like, let me go do this other Hail Mary bet um, in title. Maybe that's how he justified it. If I'm on the board of directors, I would not be proud about this decision at all. So let's look at who's on the board of directors. Okay, there's Jack. You got a couple VCs here, okay? Uh, Roloff, this guy's legit. You got um, you got Mary Meeker. She knows what she's doing. Um, Anna Patterson, not as familiar with her, but um, you also have Larry Summers. This guy said that there's no threat from uh, China when it comes to Chinese tech monopolies, Huawei and the like. He just hadn't seen any evidence of it. Okay, Larry, all right. And you got the chief innovation officer at the NBA. You got this guy from the Ford Foundation. I, it just, I don't know, the, the board failed. 
Um, the board, if anyone's supposed to keep the CEO in check, it's the board. And this is a fail. I would imagine that, that the really astute technology investors and operators like Mary and Roloff here could not really be backing this. I would imagine that, you know, maybe Jack got some of these other board members to, um, to, to, you know, to be for this, but, but the real serious technology operators there would, would not approve of this. So, you know, what is some of the reaction on this? Even, uh, even, even this, my, my group here, the information, which I don't tend to see eye to eye on very often, <laughs> even they're knocking this transaction, even if it was a fit, even if it was a successful music streaming company title isn't a good fit for Square, which has steadily expanded the financial products it offers most recently by launching a bank. On Twitter, Dorsey said the deal would help Square create new tools for artists, included by creating new listening experiences to bring fans closer together, as well as merchandising integrations and new revenue streams. I mean, the guy's in outer space. In reality, Dorsey is trying to jam a Square peg into a round hole. It may be time for someone else at Square to grab the wheel, board, wake up, board of Square. This is a, it's just a, not, a, not only is the money, I mean, the money is not too significant, right? From what I was talking about with the caviar um, earnings, but it just goes to show you, I mean, what is management really focusing on? You can see here, square down 9%. It should be more. You got a, almost a $100 billion market cap here. Who cares about title? And then you're going to put Jay-Z on the board. Why is Jay-Z going on the board of Square? It just, the Google thing doesn't make any sense because it's, it's fake news. It's, they're, they're just, that's a PR thing. Google's not dumb. They know what they're doing. They're not hurting their business. That's just a PR distraction. This deal though, this is just straight dumb. Who does this? What a waste of time. This guy's operating two businesses, and for the one half of his time spent on Square, he focuses on the title transaction. I mean, I've got, I've got, uh, just uh, let me show one. You know, I try not to do this. It's just, it's just too tempting. Here's the fearless leader. This is the guy. This is the guy. Um, the astute. And sound and, you know, very focused, sophisticated CEO of two publicly traded companies, Square and Twitter. This is the guy. This is the fearless leader. <laughs> this guy's a joke. I cannot believe it. All right. Yep. Can't make it up. Can't make it up. In other news... Fashion marketplaces are, you know, really coming into their own. We've talked a lot about uh, Farfetch, the number one leader. We've seen, you know, the whole ethos of, of winner take all. The show is, right, how these two worlds, tech monopolies and incumbents are battling it out, you know, and, and how, how can um, we bring more parity to the extremely kind of... Um, unbalanced nature of tech monopolies in today's environment. And so what we've started to see in, 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 in luxury and in fashion is we've seen some of the manufacturers wake up and say, hey, marketplaces are kind of a big deal, kind of like the next big distribution channel for us. I should have a stake in that next big distribution channel called 
marketplace. We saw Richemont, which owns a bunch of different luxury brands, put a bunch of money into Farfetch. They launched a JV with Farfetch in China. Richemont spells a lot of jewelry, a lot of luxury goods in China. And then also, you know, put money into uh, Farfetch, you know, holding Farfetch proper. We've also seen the Caring Group, which owns a number of other luxury brands like Balenciaga and others. They had put money into First Dibs years ago. First Dibs is like the number three trailing sneaker marketplace. But then recently, Caring put money into Goat, the number two sneaker marketplace that Foot Locker had put money into a few years ago. And we've also now seen Caring put money into a company called Vestiaire. So, you know, we've talked a lot about these kind of luxury goods marketplaces, Farfetch, Real Real. I'm going to come to them in a second. Um, you've got the sneaker marketplaces, you've got watch marketplaces. And now you have, and not now, but you also have secondhand clothing textile marketplaces. These aren't as much around luxury. Poshmark recently IPO'd. I think their average sale price is like so anywhere from $20 to $30, right? It's a very different price point of consumer. Vestiaire is a competitor to them uh, in Europe. Vestiaire Collective here raising $216 million for its secondhand fashion platform. Uh, the company raised $216 million and has reached uh, you know, unicorn status at, at over a billion dollar valuation. Now, the interesting thing with this here is that Caring Group has taken a sizable stake in Vestiaire. Vestiaire, I mean, Caring is leading the round uh, along with Tiger Global. Caring now owns a 5% stake of Vestiaire. So simple math, that means these guys wrote a $50 million check into Vestiaire. So they're doing a lot of deals here, right? They are you know, aggressively pursuing marketplaces, that's clear. Um, and they're actually operating in a lead role, right? They're actually saying, yes, Tiger, let's let's co-lead this round with you, as opposed to being a, um, you know, a, uh, a follower on the round, right? These guys are really leaning in and saying, we need to put dollars to work in marketplace. Not only do we need to control the distribution channel, but this is also a defensive mood, uh, move in a couple ways. One, what you don't want to have happen is what just happened to uh, to the banks with Plaid. So we saw we saw Plaid work with two hundred plus banks that that interconnected infrastructure, right? Uh, that all the banks are connecting to all this data going through Plaid. Visa tries to buy Plaid for five billion dollars. The banks hadn't taken a position in Plaid. Visa is a platform company, actually platform monopoly status, one of the oldest platforms, actually, and obviously in Plaid. Great decision by Visa to buy Plaid. Because none of the banks put enough money into Plaid as an investor, they didn't have any rights as a defensive mechanism to say, yeah, Plaid, I want you to be successful. I want you to grow. I want to use your service because you're great. But I don't want a tech monopoly to buy you. That could include Visa, MasterCard, but also obviously a Google, Apple, Amazon, et cetera. That I think is, a, is another key part. Not only can incumbents by investing in uh, up and coming dominant uh, platform businesses um, use that to their advantage for revenue synergies, for other strategic synergies, but it's also a defensive mechanism to protect against 
the scenario where in this case for Vestiaire, if Amazon says, yeah, Amazon luxury just isn't working out as, as well as we had thought, or if Amazon says, I want to get into secondhand clothing, um, let me go buy Vestiaire in Europe, right? Now you've got some downside protection because what would be even worse is for these large tech monopolies where doing a billion dollar acquisition is, is literally just a rounding error to them at this point. Now you've got some protection against that. So it's another reason why I really like to look at what's going on in fashion as an example for what I think we're going to start to see in many other uh, industries and verticals, right? Incumbents, up and coming tech startups uh, coming together, sharing synergies, um, both having revenue lift and, you know, putting capital to work in the startup business. Because um, you can make good money on your investment, but you can also get some rights to protect against those adverse scenarios where that large tech monopoly comes in to, to just buy um, that, that dominant platform in a given vertical. That's basically the key growth strategy of these tech monopolies, right? Um, everyone complains about Facebook, Facebook buying Instagram. It's the same thing, right? They just come in, they buy a business for a few billion dollars. That's the growth mechanism. That's really how you see tech monopolies at that platform, platform conglomerate status. Um, roll into new adjacent platform businesses. It's not really a build from scratch strategy for the tech monopolies. They're too big. They really can't go build new businesses from scratch. It's just, it's so hard to do. So hard to do in general, let alone with all the inertia and all the other stuff going on inside of these big companies. M&A is really the key way that these, these tech monopolies expand into other verticals. So by investing in a vestiaire, you're just taking another chip off the table that a tech monopoly can use to, to roll into um, these types of industries. So um, Vestiaire is a leading player. The other one um, in Europe is called Vinted. Vinted and Vestiaire are, are really the two top players there. Um, in the US, then you really have Oshmark and ThreadUp uh, in this kind of secondhand fashion uh, you know, retail environment. Very interesting space. The interesting news on Farfetch and the Real Real is you're also now starting to see that winner take all dynamic um, in luxury goods. So different than the secondhand space that I'm talking about here. Farfetch came out with their earnings here. Farfetch reaches profitability after 12 years. I mean, that's that's kind of what it takes, right? You you have aggressive growth, you're reinvesting in growth. The luxury e-commerce platforms revenues in 2020 increased 64%. $1.7 billion. They've done a lot of really interesting things. Again, platforms don't have to, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have platform revenue and you can have linear revenue. Uh, Farfetch has acquired key brands like Off-White Brand, which I think was the former designer from, from Louis Vuitton, I think. Um, so, you know, they have their own proprietary brands that Farfetch is controlling. And obviously they have the marketplace dynamic, but revenue rose 64% with gross merchandise value exceeding $3 billion, up about 49% year over year. Their revenues are actually growing faster than the GMV, which means I think that speaks to this hybrid, right? Linear and marketplace dynamic um, where you're, you're grabbing more revenue by selling more products in a, in a linear kind of reseller from balance sheet model. What this graph is showing is that for manufacturers, this is a graph to woo manufacturers. This is also kind of the, you know, this is really kind of the marketplace end state is you, you use third party stores and sellers 
get traction. That's actually what helped Farfetch get a lot of that initial traction is they went to these boutique retailers and, and helped attract the boutique retailers to sell. What this graph is showing, this is a graph to woo manufacturers. We've seen Amazon do this, right? Where they, they woo the third-party sellers, the distributors, the, the retailers to come sell. But they're the intermediary step for the marketplace to then cut out that middleman, I know it's a taboo word, and then go to the actual manufacturer. Um, that's kind of the, the marketplace playbook many times. Not all the time, but many times. So what this is saying is, hey, on the left, hey, manufacturers, if you go and you sell your products to wholesalers and distributors, right, and it goes to the traditional retail channel, um, look at how much margin you're losing. But if you go through the far-fetched channel, right, brand revenue, see here, they've got brand revenue in the lighter shades of, of blue, you will keep more of your margin because what are you doing? You're cutting out the intermediary, either a distributor, a retailer, variety of different folks that are buying and reselling those goods from the manufacturer. So you can see them, they've reached the stage, right, where they're now trying to go directly to the manufacturer. It's a critical kind of evolution um, in the business. On the other hand, though, Real Real struggling. Real Real is a much smaller US-based uh, far-fetched luxury good competitor. They actually had declining um, a decline in Q4. Basically, what you're seeing with Real Real is you're starting to see the discrepancy between the number one and the number two player is real, real, not doing so hot. So they're much smaller number two uh, than Farfetch. Last topic. So we, you know, I was talking about um, Coinbase's S1 and Coinbase on the secondary markets uh, was selling its shares for roughly a $100 billion valuation at a little bit more than a billion dollars in revenue. And they made, they made a few hundred million dollars in profit. Very nice, healthy margin business. But the thing that I was really looking for in, in their S1 was these Coinbase has been more bullish on crypto than anyone. I mean, it's their whole business, crypto. Um, so you would, think that, you would think that there was other stuff on the balance sheet that would justify a 100x revenue multiple. If we look at page F31, all the way at the bottom of the S1, it says that as of December 2019, uh, uh, Coinbase was holding about $34 million in crypto. And as of December of 2020, they were holding $316 million uh, of crypto. So it went up a little less than 10x. On page 100, they describe what they're holding. So as of December 31st, 2019, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Tezos represented 44, 12, and 16% of the total crypto assets held. So that was as of December 2019. As of December 31st, 2020, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum represented 63 and 8%. And we don't know what makes up the other 29%. So they went even heavier on Bitcoin, actually trimmed back on Ethereum. And then they started to hold presumably even more altcoins um, than they had been prior. So that's interesting. Here's another good nugget. Our crypto assets held are accounted for as intangible assets with indefinite useful lives and are initially measured at cost. 
Impairment exists when the carrying amount exceeds its fair value, which is measured using the quoted price of the crypto asset at the time its fair value is being measured. We assign cost of transactions on a first in, first out basis. So this is talking about how they value the crypto, right? Because if you spent $33 million on Bitcoin seven years ago, very different story than spending $33 million on crypto in 2019. You'd still be doing pretty well uh, right now, but also very different ways to think about how you value that asset. Suffice to say, it's actually a little none too inspiring. You know, I would have thought that these guys would have had $50 million in crypto that they've tucked away over the past eight years. And that thing is now worth, you know, billion, you know, I don't know, what, what would it be worth now? Like 10, $20 billion. Um, and then you'd say, oh, okay, $100 billion sale on, on, uh, on, on the secondary markets for their shares. That's the kind of the effective valuation they got. Okay, yeah. I think they did 1.3 billion in revenue, 100 billion dollar valuation. Again, I'm not saying the numbers make sense, but it would, it would at least help fill in some of the gaps. You know, what are some comps to Coinbase? I mean, it, it's hard, um, but you could actually look at Robinhood's not public, but the role of Robinhood as a as a as a retail trading app for stocks is actually very similar to Coinbase. Just you're trading different stuff. One is stocks, one is crypto. Um, now, a public company, which actually is much more robust, has a variety of different revenue streams, um, but also you know, helps traders, both institutional and, and some retail trade and has been around forever, is Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers has a 30, $31, 32000000000 billion valuation. They got a 30 uh, PE ratio. They're doing um, about two to two and a half billion dollars in revenue, and they've got a thirty-two billion dollar valuation. So very nice multiple. Let's call it. Um, let's call it roughly fifteen x revenue. You got a thirty x PE ratio here, price to earnings ratio. And then you do the math and, and you just think about the back of the hand napkin math on, um, on Coinbase, they would have roughly a 300 uh, PE multiple if, if we took the valuation that they had in the secondary markets. And that's where I thought maybe if they had just a boatload of Bitcoin sitting in some, you know, some USB drive somewhere, um, that would help fill the gap for me because I just wasn't seeing it. And I still basically, I just still don't see it. I mean, it's an awesome business. They've done a great job. It's not a platform business, just like Robinhood is in a platform business, just like Interactive Brokers is in a platform business. Why Interactive Brokers is not in plat. Uh, they're not actually an investment platform. Uh, whereas, whereas the NASDAQ, whereas ICE, uh, which owns New York Stock Exchange, they are in plat. It just... You know, it's just not adding up. I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't adding up, but this one's not adding up in a very big way. Um, we'll see where where the pricing actually comes out uh, when you know when the shares go public. Not to say that they would they would go at a hundred billion dollars. Not sure who on the secondary market said, "Yeah, let me buy these at a hundred billion dollar valuation." But um, yeah, I guess you know, crazier things have happened. Just not for me. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks very much for joining. I'll talk to you soon.